Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Good morning. Michael here. Mark's there. How are you? Well, I can't ask how people are because they can't respond. But how are you, Mark? Yeah, I'm fine. And we're just going to have to extrapolate out from that that hopefully most people are fine. But if not, maybe the podcast will will cheer them up anyway. Yeah. This week, we have lovely Bethany. We we sometimes ask guests about their sort of surroundings and things. And Bethany has observed lockdown more stringently than I think anyone we've met. Oh, really? She's scarcely... Well, she'll tell yourself, but you've hardly been out of the house, have you? As of tomorrow night, it'll be uh, 50 weeks since I My last word. left the house. Yeah. I've had to leave the house on four occasions. In the entire pandemic? Yeah. I've had to go to the pharmacy on one occasion. I went to the shop at the top of my road at six o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve thinking that no one would be in there and it was full. Wrong. It Maniacs all over the place. Yeah. And uh, in the middle of the first lockdown again, I had to go to the dentist because I'd got a little bit too excited with some waffles that I'd made and <laughs> bit down on a fork. <laughs> and I, I reckon I could have recited all of those because I follow... Bethany on Twitter and so rare is it that she says I have to leave the house now that it's a real event for her followers I'm just like bloody hell I hope she's all right yeah Bethany is our first woman voice on the podcast which is very exciting we laughed a lot during this one didn't we we had a good chat with Bethany Black and a, a very wide-ranging chat yeah lots of laughs lots of perhaps the, the broadest range of intellectual ground we've ever had actually covered because Bethany knows about a hell of a lot of stuff yeah she's interested in a lot of stuff as well so um really great podcast I hope you enjoy it so this week we have the wonderful Bethany Black on our screen here, although Mark and I are actually in the same room, which is a lovely change of event. Michael and I sit next to each other, and uh, although safely apart, and as he says, we're looking at, well, Bethany Black. Looking at Bethany Black. Hello, Bethany Black. Hello. Could you tell us who you are? Oh, God, now that's a philosophical, yeah. on a philosophical <laughs> level, that's... Uh... We do know, by the way, we, ha- we don't just randomly appoint people. Yes. Like, it's not jury duty, the podcast. Just sent out a Zoom link onto Twitter and just said, who wants to come? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a ghost made of meat. That's it. Uh, yeah, um... But actually, I would say that um, who you are is a, maybe a more complex question for you than for some of the guests we've had because um, well you'll, we'll hear why uh, in terms of what I do for a living I'm a comedian and writer and uh, actor and uh, now which always makes me feel like such an asshole, a Twitch streamer um, Actually, I learned what Twitch was earlier Mark said something about Bethany and Twitching earlier and I was like I don't think I need to know uh, what like... yeah I referred to your Twitch and like most of us before the pandemic he assumed it was some sort of physical tick that you, I was talking yeah. about but uh, no but you are. Uh, could you, for the uninitiated, could you say what a Twitch is or not at 
about Twitch. the Twitch. Yes, Twitch. Yeah, yeah. It's a website. It was until about a year ago a way for teenage boys to go and show other teenage boys how good they were at games like Call of Duty. Right. And over the last year, it sort of blossomed into this fantastic multimedia. Uh, it's almost like television that you can talk to or radio that you can see. What do you stream on Twitch, Bethany? I do a daily show where I just chat to people in my chat box for an hour or so, and then I play video games. Yeah, I've got some fun ones that I've been playing. And people seem to quite like watching me play Animal Crossing. Oh, I stopped with it. I think my animal might be dead by now. I kind of, I lost interest. Oh, mate, you can't neglect your animals. I mean, I haven't even played Animal Crossing, but I know the first rule is you don't let them die. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Well, that's it. I went back after I'd not played it for like two months and mm. everyone on my island had been worried about me and told me that. And that was just too much stress and anxiety <laughs> for me to cope with. So we've covered what you do professionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then the who you are is, is a, it's a multifaceted question, it I think, is. if we look at your yeah. history. Do, do you want to try and bring people up to date with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm uh, I'm gay. I'm trans. I'm autistic. I have ADHD. I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I have uh, agoraphobia. What We've else? only got an hour. It's you, are you vegetarian? Yeah, yeah. Vegetarian? I vegan? am. I'm a vegetarian. I, I was vegan for a long time. I'm a recovering drug addict and recovering alcoholic. So there we go. So let's crack on, shall Quite we? Quite a lot to unpack. <laughs> Which one would you like to start? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the question that we ask all of our guests is mm-hmm. about their first brushes with masculinity and when you kind of realise that masculinity as a concept existed out there in the world. Can you remember a time? Yeah, I can remember sort of recognising it and going, that's not how I feel. Mm. As in something that was in opposition to who I was. Because yeah. I was only about, must have only been about four or five when I kind of realised I was trans. So... Right. That wasn't like, oh, this is masculinity. That's not me. That was uh, an episode of The Love Boat where it turned out that one of Gopher's old college friends was trans. And right. suddenly in my head went, oh, that's, yeah, that makes sense. That's, yes. So that's who I am. So you were given a label by that, which you just hadn't had access to before. Yeah, on an intellectual level, I must have recognised what masculinity was before that, but hadn't really gone and put it into it. And so then once I kind of knew that and knew that that wasn't, where I sort of fitted me and masculinity. Took a break. Yeah. <laughs> <We> separated. <laughs> so, so you lived from then a very long time before. Yeah, between that conscious uncoupling and mm. and moving forward. And like, making it official. Yeah, well, you know, you need to have a trial separation. And you, need <laughs> sure, you need to make sure that you know what you're doing, you know. Uh, you felt this kind of opposition to masculinity. What does that look like? What did masculinity look like that you felt that you didn't identify with or whatever? It just wasn't me. It Mm. wasn't me or any of the things that were kind of expected of it. Yeah, that's the question I was asking, I suppose. There were certain things that I was into that would be traditionally considered to be male pastimes. Comic books, for example. Very into video games growing up, very into wrestling and certain things like that. Which, sorry, my cats have suddenly decided, having never really come in. This cat is a character in this episode. What's the cat's name? Well, this is a different cat that's just come in. I've had two so far. There's been Spruce, who's come in. Uh, She's very tiny, and her brother Albert has just walked. We just need this data for the credits, you see, (laughs) and for the promotional materials. It was just pushed open the door that I've been deliberately keeping closed, walked in, had a look around, and gone, no, there's nothing for me. That's what cats do, isn't it? Oh, they're nosy, all right. They're they're no respecters of boundaries, cats. Yeah. One thing, this this might be slightly, I suppose this is a potentially ignorant question as a sort of cis white male, but um, we've had quite a few guests that... Um, Come on, I'm waiting. I'm excited for this one. <laughs> oh, on. spoiling <laughs> for it. <laughs> get him, Bethany, get him. I've now really built this question out. Well, I, I suppose I was going to say, 
we've had quite a few guests that are gay, gay men, mm. that have talked about very similar feelings of um, feeling alienated from the trappings of masculinity that they grew up with mm. and, you know, ended up, I suppose, moving away from that, rejecting that, building something else, yeah. um, coming out. Those are the questions as basic as how did you know you were actually trans rather than simply, you know, not masculine in a traditional sense? Oh, God, I really, really wished I spent so much of my time growing up every single day wishing that that was the case. Hmm. Desperately trying to prove to myself because it's it's the thing that I realized like later on. There's a really important thing within science relating to confirmation bias that if you what people tend to do is they tend to try and look for information to try and prove themselves right. Yeah. Right. You tend to try and find information which goes and backs up what you already, what think. You already think. Yeah. And yeah, and it's the exact opposite of what you need to do. In and sorry, now a, a, the original cast has now come in and is now knocking things over on my spruce. desk. Spruce. Uh, yeah, spruce is back in. Spruce and Albert are really just, just to paint the picture for the for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. yeah the two cats duking it out for attention here as Bethany tries to outline some of the principles of science that's the drama that you've walked into with this podcast this is not just a masculinity podcast there's all sorts of human interest stories yeah so I spent like most of my youth and teenage years desperately trying to prove to myself that I couldn't possibly be trans and and seeking any proof that you could yeah and desperately trying to seek anything that that I could do to either try and find a place within masculinity or find a ways in which I could reject it without having to be trans mm. desperately spending most of my teenage years wishing that I was in inverted commas just a gay man mm. and really finding myself by the time I was 19 20 just completely having a nervous breakdown as a result of trying to push myself into that role well it must be yeah psychologically absolutely exhausting to live in a form of, well, I don't know if the word is denial, but to try and convince yourself of something that you really deep down know isn't true for years, yeah. for, for you're talking about a decade and a half. I mean, yeah. w- when the breakdown came, how did it manifest? What happened when you had to eyeball this fundamental thing about yourself and couldn't uh, deny it anymore? <laughs> I ended up trying to convince my doctor that I was depressed, right? Which is mm. a ridiculous thing because I was depressed. Because you were, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely <laughs> depressed. But in my head, I just thought, by this point, I thought that I was making everything up. You were gaslighting yourself sort of I, thing. Yeah, I was absolutely gaslighting. I'd absolutely tried to gaslight myself because growing up in the world that I grew up in, it wasn't acceptable to let anyone know that you were trans. It was every single piece of media and every single time I saw any representation of myself anywhere, the narrative was you come out, you lose all of your friends, you lose all of your family, you have to go all the way somewhere where no one knows you and start again. Trans Island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, London, as it was known. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where I went. But I, um, and so as a result of that, hiding that fundamental part of who you are, not only from yourself, but from the people who you're closest to, and realising that if you come out, that you are going to lose everybody. And so it really pushes you into an incredibly dark place. And so by the time I, when I had a nervous breakdown and tried to convince my doctor that I was depressed, I told her about the suicide attempts that I'd been making every other day, like, which is something that people who aren't depressed do um, <laughs> in my head. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, you're only doing this because you want attention. Right. And yeah, because I gaslit myself into such a position that it was just like I couldn't accept any of it. And so I went and told her and kind of told her, uh, just uh, went and told her the absolute truth of what was, you know... All of it, the trans... No, I didn't tell her anything about that. I just told her about the depression. I see, right. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, not the absolute truth then still. Yeah, no, still, it was just, I am depressed. I am really bad. I, you know, I was self-harming and like showed her the injuries and talked to her about that and talked to her about, you know, how I constantly had suicidal ideation and had reached the point where, yeah, I was 
you know, trying to figure out how I would go about doing it and had planned to do it and had been doing bits and pieces of preparation for that and how I'd try to hang myself and managed to bring down a light fitting because I hadn't worked out the physics of it. And so she gave me Prozac <laughs> and right. went, we'll get somebody to come around and see you. And so I got a letter saying, then like 24 hours saying that a psychiatrist and a social worker were going to come and visit me on the Monday. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is what happens when Labour are in government. You get seen really, really quickly. <laughs> Hang on, there used to be a Labour government. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's difficult to remember way back then. It's starting to get difficult. Yeah, yeah it is. But it was then when they sent the social worker and the psychiatrist around to my house that I realised that they were about to section me. Right, okay. And it had kind of put me into this situation where my two options in my head in that second, in that room, whilst they were both sat there with me, was either tell them everything now or probably end up in a psychiatric unit for the rest of your life. Wow. Christ. Gosh. So at that so, point, you really are backed into a corner in all senses. Yeah. And it was like, you know, the fear of the fall is less than the fear of the flames at that point. You know, if you're, mm. if you're stuck in a burning building, you're not going to jump out the window immediately. You're going to wait, and obviously, unless you're on the ground floor. But you're going to wait until the fear of death is is, is yeah. less from one or the other. I like the fact that you have that sort of mental precision where you have to clarify that if you're on the ground floor, you do not <laughs> yeah, need to leap out of a building. You should just leave, you should just leave whatever window is available. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> what happened in that room then with a the psychiatrist and a social worker? I was expecting them to confirm everything that my brain had been telling me, that I was a liar, that I was mad, mm. that I was making this up, that this wasn't who I was. All of the stuff I'd tried to convince myself for years. And they just, their demeanour changed immediately and they just went, oh, right, okay, now that's, that's actually something we can solve quite easily. <laughs> How did that feel, I suppose? That's kind of the first time you've unleashed this, yeah, this thing that's been inside. It was such a relief. It was such a massive relief. Mm. Because it was like, it, you know, and it wasn't the first time because I'd about three years earlier, I'd seen my local GP and she'd managed to get me a referral to a psychiatrist in my local town. And I spoke to him for the first time and he went and used the correct pronouns in my notes. And that was the first time that I'd had anything like that. And that was just like this sudden feeling of, oh, God, right, actually, no, this is, it was like that feeling of ease in myself. An official validation. Yeah. yeah. But then, unfortunately, he 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 died by suicide uh, oh, shortly oh, after God. that. So they needed to reassess everybody who'd been seen by him in the last year. But at that point, I was away to university and was like in my headspace going, no, I can do, I can, I can be exactly what the world wants me to be. I do think this is immensely valuable for people to hear because we know people listen to this that are in all sorts of different situations in their lives and have all sorts of different relationships with their uh, sexual gender or identity and often those aren't fully people write to us on the podcast and stuff like that so I, and I, we haven't heard many first-hand accounts of well what these feelings are like and how trapped you can be in them so i just i hope that if thank you for sharing to this, yeah no, I, you know there's hey it's part of my mental illness that i share <laughs> <laughs> that's true actually you don't need to encourage her to share stuff <laughs> if only mine was the same i just completely withdraw as mark knows i'll just go silent for weeks oh, me too, yeah. me and michael are much more the sort of bottling things up for a decade until they threaten to destroy us uh, <laughs> but, but then so were you and it's, it's yeah yeah i tried that it didn't work out so well you didn't have the autism diagnosis at this stage right no I didn't I didn't no that okay. was um yeah that was a long time after that it was a very long time after that that was suddenly that was quite freeing and then I had to come out to my family and I did that and none of them reacted in in the in the build-up to that I built up all of the worst case scenarios and was yeah. ready to deal with any worst case scenario that came along and absolutely nobody reacted like that at all except for my brother but 
absolutely nobody else did at all. So it was kind of... <laughs> Which again is a great, probably a great thing for people to hear. If I have if, read yeah, a but... brilliant uh, conversation that you had with your mother about oh, transitioning. Yes. Would you mind sharing? Just because I think it's yeah, absolutely yeah. iconic. <laughs> well, yeah, because like, well, the, like the whole story of this, because there's a bit more to this, but I'd panicked beforehand. My parents had gone away on holiday when I just started to go to the gender identity clinic in, in Charing Cross. And I was living back with my parents at the time. And they came back and I'd like planned to tell them and I was ready to like disappear if everything went wrong. And mm. then they were jet lagged from their holiday. So it ended up that evening where I was chatting to my mum just about general stuff. And she'd noticed that I'd painted my nails and she was like, oh, you're so funny. And I was like, <laughs> oh, right. OK, here's an in. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a clear in there. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there is a clear in. I can come out on this one. Right. And told her, came, just basically told her that, you know, what was going on told her I was trans, told her the reason that I'd been away that week while she was away on holiday was that I'd been to this uh, gender identity clinic and that it's who I am and I couldn't hide that and that's who I was, that was who I am. And I sat and I waited and I sat and I waited. It felt like it must have been an hour, but then my mum just suddenly from being deep in conversation just went, but we've just had a conservatory built. <laughs> <laughs> And whatever your expectation is, that is not it. That is the outsider. That is a classic parent. They're never more than three steps away from worrying about the, the ramifications for the conservatory. Yeah, well, that was it. And when I spoke to her about it, because my mum, my mom, and I have to clear this up, because when I spoke about this, my mum read it and she went, you make me sound so stupid. She said, the reason why I said that was because I didn't know how your dad was going to react. I didn't know if your dad was going to reject you. And even though my parents had spent never more than like two nights apart in the 60 years that they've been together now like she was thinking we may have to move we may have to go somewhere else the only thing I know about trans people is the things that mm. I've seen in the news and in the media and if we are going to have to move I kind of wish we hadn't spent all of that money on the conservatory I find that a beautifully bittersweet story because it's it's really funny but it's also we've just had a conservatory built is the most mum sentence I think you could possibly <laughs> imagine yeah. but at the same time there's a real the very idea the that you might have to, to almost start your life again as a result, or that it was yeah. in her head that, that it, the ramifications could be that but huge. But also, I suppose, in that sentence is also the the understanding that if that's what it takes, that, yeah. they, that she would have done that. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. a lovely sort mm. of sentiment that's buried within the comic, <laughs> the comedy of it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, and again, it might be useful for people listening who have to confront telling someone in their life something that, that it may well be that the worst case scenarios you've got in your head are, are less you know it's, it is all about the conservatory in the end it is mm. well yeah the thing that i've learned through this is specifically through recovery through drug and alcohol is it, it's something that my aa sponsor said to me which has stuck with me ever since then which is the only people we ever shock with what's inside our heads are ourselves that's great i like that because it absolutely is. When you tell somebody else these thoughts that you're having, they either go, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> or they go, that sounds awful. How can I help? It's very rarely, what are you talking about? You are so wrong. The only people we shock with what's inside our heads is ourselves. I'm going to make that. I'm having that as a note on my phone. I think that's... Put, that's, on, put it on a mug. That's really good. I think that's beyond mug level. I, I, I think <laughs> I might get that on something larger. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? And it's, it's, yeah. it comes back to something we've talked about before. People are always thinking about you less than you think as well. They, yeah. they are less bothered by you yeah, than, than and I you think imagine. We've, we've talked about it a lot in terms of thinking about there's clearly a systemic problem in men being able to express themselves and talking about their mental health and things like that. It's fascinating to me that there's so many conversations out there, like we're having even now, about how the, the importance of talking about your mental health and being open about your feelings, things like that, yet that this problem is still 
so deeply ingrained. Uh, it's not really a question, I suppose. It's more just amusing of like how and why is that still the case when it's being proven time and time again for so many different people. I think it partly comes down to this idea that whenever you see one of the things that I've learned over the last 20 odd years since it was that I came out and transitioned is mm. the way that the, the way that society like one of the things that was really immediately apparent when I came out was this sudden loss of privilege that mm. suddenly the second I was read as female people were less likely to believe that what I was saying was a joke they were less likely to believe that I knew what I was talking about nah I reckon you're making this up very uh, good Mark <laughs> <laughs> just my little joke <laughs> And the other side of that is that suddenly I could do the exact same things that I was doing before and that would garner absolutely no criticism whatsoever. And suddenly I was being emotional. Mm. And I think it partly it comes down to this horrific idea that, you know, oh, women are so emotional from people who are emotional because everyone's emotional. Anger is an emotion. It's an odd thing to criticise a person for, for a start, isn't it? Yeah. Because without an index of emotions, you are not a fully functioning human, for a start. Yeah, and I think it's that the the acceptable emotions that men are allowed to express are so limited in yeah. contemporary society that things like admitting that you love your friends, yeah, admitting that you care about things, finding things fun, attractive so many of these things unless they're within really strict parameters showing empathy is another one that is just like that's not a male trait so it shouldn't and it's a trait that can be taught as well that's a really interesting thing that you know you can teach people empathy mm. there was a study about surgeons that showed that the best surgeons were the ones who were less empathetic but the ones who were then retaught after they had to lose an, an amount of empathy in order to become surgeons yeah but then once they were retaught empathy they then became better doctors once they'd been able to do that because it requires a losing of it and gaining of it and it's it is a skill that you can hone that i think is interesting i met a surgeon once on a radio show and um this is a story i've told before and bethany will have had similar things all comedians have got a story like this but he, he wrote this guy called henry marsh wrote this amazing book about operating on people's brains he's one of the country's leading neurosurgeons oh, i think i've read this yeah. yes yeah the book's called do no harm yeah there's two books actually and yeah so the book starts with this sentence something like i often have to cut into the brain is a thing i hate doing one of the most memorable starts to a book i've ever read because imagine saying that about something 50 years or... mm. anyway just before we went on stage he said it must be terrifying being a comedian <laughs> and I, I don't know mate your thing is hacking into people's brains though <laughs> yeah. He said to me something almost identical to what Bethany just said, which is that in order to be a top-level surgeon, you, you have to resemble a psychopath in certain ways because you cannot be thinking every time, this is someone's brain, this is the seat of their personality. I mean, not all surgeons are men, of course, but I think a lot of traditionally high-performing male-type roles maybe do encourage the people doing them to switch off some of their more human qualities like empathy yeah. in order to take that power. And, and over generations, that solidifies maybe as a habit. Yeah, I think it's, it's almost like um, survivorship bias. Like in the Second World War, when the planes were coming back in and they were trying to figure out how to make sure that they weren't losing as many pilots. Mm. And they looked at the planes and saw all the places where there were bullet holes. And one of the engineers said, right, well, we need to cover those to make sure that we're getting more pilots back until somebody pointed out, no, you need to cover up the places that there aren't bullet holes because you're not seeing the bullet holes on the ones that don't return. Of course. Yeah. Mm. And so as a result of that, you end up in this situation where a certain type of people end up doing a certain type of job and then it becomes so ingrained in the culture that you go you have to be this type of person in order to be able to do this type of job we've literally just had a conversation with a soldier um, <laughs> which kind of covered some similar things of what you're talking about you mentioned something that i've written down which I, i'm going to paraphrase terribly it would be better <laughs> if we just rewound <laughs> what we've just said the idea that surgeons 
have to lose empathy and then regain it. Mm. And in the regaining, yeah. they therefore become stronger for having it in that kind of yeah. new sense. Do you think that's true in terms of any sort of skill or quality? I'm thinking kind of in terms of people talking about mental health and challenges to their mental health. The conversations are out there, but they tend to only be the conversations are out there from people who've experienced challenges and therefore have kind of in some way lost control and have had to kind of regain that control. And they're therefore able to kind of look back on it with a bit more structure, I suppose. We always have one question that goes on too long. I think this is a real candidate. Yeah, I'm currently staring into the middle (laughs) distance. I suppose my, my question is, how do we have those conversations without having to lose the control? Do you think there's a way that that can happen? I think, like, I find so much of this stuff fascinating. I've been mm. writing, um, I've been writing a pilot for a TV show that deals with quite a lot of this sort of stuff. Brilliant. And, and so, as a result of that, I've done a lot of reading into like how brains work. It's fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and behavioral psychology, and looking into like so much of this stuff, and recognizing that there is so much stuff that can be taught in terms of emotional understanding and that emotional intelligence is something that can be taught and it's a thing which is massively undervalued Mm. in our society that IQ is everything and EQ is just like it's not even worth doing and it's because a lot of people who have incredibly high IQs have never really had to focus on developing their EQ and don't realize that it is something that they can they can do. I mean, this is the first time I've heard the word EQ, which must mean I have a really high IQ, surely. <laughs> yeah, you're very clever, but you're a psycho. And, and this is Bethany's point. You, you, you've never had to learn how your fellow humans interact because you're... T- well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's your, like, your emotional quotients. So mm. it's... Yeah, I mean, the, the very fact you've never heard that term, though, does make Bethany's point. We never talk about Precisely. emotional intelligence in any sort of scientific or codified way. We just mm. hope that people have it. Yeah, exactly. So much of the time, the things that we do investigate are the things that go wrong. Mm. And we mm. have a look at how we can try and fix them once they've gone wrong rather than trying to figure out a way to make sure that they don't happen in the first place and when you've got an entire generation of people all suffering with the exact same problems or recognizing they're suffering with the exact same problems there need to be ways to kind of sort it out you know my parents generation were brought up entirely by people who had no access to mental health care who almost all of them had ptsd because they'd all been in a war yeah i mean i'm the same generation as you bethany i guess and so we're between this more aware bunch of young people like well not michael himself but people his contemporaries well, i'll take, I'll take <laughs> young people <laughs> and then on the other side as you say this kind of post-war generation um we talk a lot about empathy in this it's a hobby horse that i keep going back to i think it yeah. is crucial to our development as a species and this this podcast is an exercise in attempted empathy i suppose but i learn how other people think we all learn. Yeah. but um on a practical level and I'm not asking you to reform the whole of society or <laughs> But if you could, if, if you could, that would be okay, great. Yeah, no, I'll give it a go. Yeah, have a crack at it, will you? I've got half an hour after this before my show starts. So yeah, I'll, I think I can probably fit <laughs> you, it in. You can at least make a start, eh? Do some bullet points, yeah. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Speaking as someone with a couple of kids myself, but also just with a wider desire to... Um, have a good now he's going on, on for too long, Mark. This is still comfortably shorter than your question. And I hope the... <laughs> I hope the I hope the edit reflects that. <laughs> um, what can we do on a practical day-to-day level, do you think, Bethany, to expose, especially young men, to two ideas of empathy, to educate them in the yeah. ways we're talking about? Honestly, I think it's something that can be taught. So I think it's something that needs to become a part of things that are taught in schools. Like formally? Formally, yeah, yeah, formally dealing with stuff like that. I mean, one of the ways that I've been doing I got on my Twitch stream, right, because it's, it's listed under LGBTQIA. Hmm. So yeah. I get quite a lot of young men from horrific websites arriving to just try and to try and upset me to try and troll me often just with accurate physical descriptions of me so that probably doesn't get them very far then my favorite trolls are like you're gay and i'm like yes yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yes can i help you with something and yeah <laughs> <laughs> try harder please and every time that happens i always try and talk to them rather than get angry with them or upset with them i try and just sort of talk to them about it and go, listen, I know that you're hurting because hurt people hurt people. That's Mm. how this works. I know that you're doing this because you think it'll be fun because I was you. When I was in so much emotional and psychological pain, the thing that I did was to lash out and try and make other people feel shitty. Hmm. Uh, rather than trying to make myself feel better. And it didn't make my life any better no, at all. No, it doesn't all. work, does it? It doesn't at all. No, it really, really doesn't. And so I always try and like put it through that lens of just mm. whenever I encounter people who are like that, I just go, okay, what is it? What is what is the issue that's going on? Has anyone kind of responded in a, in a productive way to that kind of line of talk yeah like they do quite a lot yeah quite often people will respond in a productive way that is good to hear that's really wonderful yeah because once they've shouted themselves out they then there's nothing more to say they have nothing left to do and so they Mm. just end up going oh right yeah (laughs) yeah that's really interesting because a lot of the time we hear is uh, don't feed the trolls don't ignore the trolls and don't feed them but nourish them (laughs) (laughs) feed them good stuff yeah, I mean, yeah. An extension of this conversation is all three of us are um, pretty active tweeters, and I'm, you know, I'm all over your Twitter, and I see you do quite a good job of. I would say that you kind of educate people on Twitter, but also have more or less a zero tolerance policy for anything that is going to pollute your mental space. I've I've rarely seen mm. someone police their Twitter boundaries quite as effectively as you. Yeah, it's something of a cliche, uh, not just in this podcast but everywhere to say, you know, oh. 
social media makes everything worse. Social media is bad well, for us. I mean, you know, it's I've been poisoning. considering leaving Twitter recently. Let me have a quick check. I don't know if you can see that there. Can you see how many? A blocked counts, but there's at least four figures, maybe five. Yeah, it's uh, 20,963 blocked. That is extraordinary. And is that done for you by automatic block filters no, or something? No, those You've are... manually blocked 20,000 people. I've manually blocked 20,000 Have you heard people. of the app? There's, there's an app called Blockchain. Well, yeah, this can, is, this yeah. is what I, I use thought. Blockchain. Yeah, I, I like, considered using that, but it doesn't, like, it's not accurate enough. That's the thing. I mean, uh, you end up blocking people who don't deserve it. And mm, yeah. I just immediately, I, I blocked loads of people. If anyone ever goes and like retweets something that I've said and someone said, oh, I'm blocked, I don't know why then it, they've either said something bigoted or they've replied a really stupid response to a joke on someone else's tweet. Well, that's the good yeah. thing. That's what I find it fun about you. You obviously quite rightly block people for all sorts of matters of principle, like yeah. transphobia or homophobia. But then sometimes you block someone just because you took an exception to some advice they gave you or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I don't like unsolicited advice. It's one of my PTSD triggers, which right. is a really weird one. And it's really horrible to have because it makes you look like such an arsehole. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't think you were an arsehole. But wh when you talk about do not give me advice, which you do do yeah, on yeah. Twitter, I didn't realise that was a specific triggering thing. Yeah, it is. I end up having flashbacks and panic attacks. And I end up like feeling rotten for days. God. And also it's compounded by the shame of recognising that people who do that are trying to be nice yeah. and that my reaction is disproportionate. And that's okay because my emotional system, my limbic system, the hot emotional system, the one that reacts to threats, can't tell the difference between reality and a joke, can't tell the difference between sincerity and a joke. And that things like that just immediately make me go, right, you're about to get attacked. Yeah. Currently, without like working through it with a therapist, which I'm trying to be able to get to do, there is no way for me to go and on my own make it so that I can intellectualize it before my emotions have hit it. Because that's what happens first. Your emotions hit it and then you're able to intellectualize it, which is why whenever you have an argument, it's best. The second you start getting into that argument thing and you start to feel it speeding up is to walk away from it mm. for 40 minutes because that's how long it takes for that part of your brain to reset. This is interesting as a comedian that you are aware you are sometimes unable to tell what a, well what a joke is like yeah psychologically neurologically incapable of that yeah. well a lot of comedians that is true of but just because they're not very good <laughs> <laughs> but you've got an actual reason but it is it's like that, the emotional responses that we have to jokes if you're in that environment and you know something's about to be a joke then mm. you are prepared for that but outside of that and, and being autistic it also means that my ability to recognize what people are doing and my ability to read people is not quite as which is one of the reasons why i've got so interested in psychology and trying to do that because it's like if i can learn this from an outside perspective maybe one day i can understand people the reading thing it's interesting because you're saying on the twitch streams is it called a stream? Yeah, that, it is, yeah. I wasn't sure whether Twitch yeah, was a verb or not. You're doing very well, Thank Michael. You. <laughs> but on Twitch streams, you do sometimes reach out to these people who are trolling you. But on Twitter, it's easier to close that conversation down. Is that just because of how Twitch works? Or is there talking about how do you read when it's relevant to... Well, on my Twitch streams, I have some really good moderators who manage to okay. get rid of them beforehand because there's a couple of seconds delay between yeah. my moderators seeing the messages and it being displayed on the screen for everyone else to see. And so often they manage to get in there and get rid of them. But occasionally, occasionally one will get through and I will yeah. see it and I won't have been distracted by something else. And at which point that then becomes the thing. I prefer not to because... For the simple reason that there's lots of things that people go, oh, it's just my opinion. I hate. But that. that's not true. It's not your opinion. It's your feeling. Yeah. 
And also, valid. something being your opinion doesn't make it valid. And People also, have shit yeah. opinions all the time. Yeah, yeah. One of my main things about opinions, thinking specifically at the moment, I'm quite frustrated at the time of recording about lots of trolling about drag race and people just keep saying, oh, this person's untalented, it's just my opinion. Hmm. Even if it was an opinion and not a feeling like you're suggesting, you've still published that. You could have just texted yeah. it to a friend. It needs to have slightly more uh, substance to it to be an opinion. That's right. It's that thing of you need to be able to go, well, I can argue it because of this, 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 and this. And if somebody yes. goes, well, da, 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 and they go, well, it's just my opinion. What you're doing is you're going, I'm dismissing your evidence and going, well, this is just what I think. Well, no, you're wrong. And we don't need to re-argue certain things. That's one of the reasons why I block so many people. Right. Because all they ever want to do is they want to rehash old arguments that I've had a thousand times before. Yeah, you've essentially met those people hundreds of times before. Yeah. You already know what they're going to yeah. say. And a lot of the time they're just looking for a reaction. They're going... I'm going to say this so that you will react to this and you'll react badly so that I can then screen cap it and then go, see, this oh. person confirms all of my biases. So I'm not going to take part in that. I refuse. I refuse to take part on their terms. I, I completely hear you. You mentioned about it's often young men who are yeah. trolling in this way. And a lot of the questions we ask, I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a sharp uh, right turn, but I think a lot of the questions we ask are around who do those people look up to? Because I think you mentioned it earlier, a lot of I'm um, doing that whole thing where I ask a really long, bad question. No, I think it's because you're trying to segue into a slightly different part of the conversation. Thank I you. think you're within your rights. Yeah, okay, I don't great. mind this Thank segue. You. It might be um, it's a bit of a, a wonder, but you are getting there. You mentioned really way back at the beginning about how when you watched Love Boat and there was this kind of it kind of gave you an option. And I think lots of young people do that. I think lots of young people look at TV or media or the world around them and kind of go, oh, that's a good thing for me to look at. Do you have any men now? that you look at and go, that's a good model of what masculinity could or should be. Uh, weirdly, and it's going to sound that I'm embarrassed to say this on account of he's a friend of mine. Can't wait. Mark Watson. <laughs> no, of course not, Mark Watson. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what is wrong with you? Sorry, no offence, Mark. We're waiting for the day. I just day. think you're terrible. No, fair play. I, I, but that's just your opinion, I suppose. <laughs> that's just my opinion. <laughs> Oh, oh, hello. Sorry, I've lost we, the... We've made Bethany laugh her headphones off. We've laughed the headphones <laughs> off her. I'm pretty proud of I that. I laughed so hard, I lost my headphones there. <laughs> there we go, I'm back. Bethany's about to basically crawl up the arse of one of her friends. <laughs> isn't me. Yeah, I feel so bad about it. Do you know, and it's that thing of like, I shouldn't do because I'm getting really good at being able to tell my friends how I feel about them. Brilliant. But um, John Robertson, the comedian, the Australian comedian ah, who great. also yeah. does a Twitch stream, is absolutely someone who I think is a fantastic example of masculinity and someone who I think is wonderful on uh, Twitch and on various, on all of the platforms that I see him doing, he, his fans come to him and he is confident in his masculinity in a way that doesn't demean other people. It, it doesn't have any of that, you know, toxic quality to it. 100%. John is a friend of mine as well and I endorse everything that is being said about him. Yeah, he, he's comfortable. He's confident in that. He's he's confident in his sexuality. He's confident in, in who he is and his place in the world. And I think he's a fantastic role model to a lot of people because he's, he's, he's accepting and welcoming whilst at the same time being you know being who he is is you know michael won't probably be that familiar with him but john is well he's australian he appears to be well, he doesn't exactly appear alpha or macho but he has certain apparent qualities of a of a, the traditional man yeah but at the same time he's very fluid in the way he thinks and experiences that he's also a gamer so he's got an interesting relationship with yeah identity and stuff like that i can relate to the feeling though of having somebody who's so comfortable and flexible in their thinking i mean i've been out for maybe going on eight years now but i still get a thrill if a straight person just mentions the word boyfriend and that sounds strange but it it, it kind of opens them to you and it makes you feel a bit more yeah. safe i suppose in a way uh, one thing that um yeah. i think you've got in common with john 
Bethany, and I, I'm not like this, I, I'm sad to say, because John has also had quite a complex past and journey to get to where he is yeah. now. Maybe we'll get him on. He'd be a great guest, actually. It's all about but, losing and gaining again, isn't it? You lose something and you gain something. I mean, we, we shouldn't use the podcast just for people to nominate other people <laughs> for the podcast. It'll disappear up his own ass quite quickly, but John yeah. would be good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you've already talked or briefly touched on stuff like AA and now you're wanting to work through your stuff now with a therapist and all this and you you seem to be extremely good and I said John also you're two people who are very analytical about the way your own brains work and unafraid to delve into that stuff but a lot of men and I include myself in this unfortunately are really resistant to stuff like therapy to the processes of examining their own minds what is that about do you think what is it part of this same thing of what men should and shouldn't do or is it more complex than that i think it's fear of appearing weak Mm -hmm. i think it's fear of change i think that's a really Uh key thing i remember being in the depths of depression before i came out and being so worried about getting help because if i did then that might change who i was and if it changed who i was i could just about cope with how awful my life was and what if it didn't change my life for the better and would i still be me yeah Mm, yeah you'd rather cling on to something that's broken than yeah risk unpicking it and it reforms in a shape that you don't yeah i'd rather know who i was not knowing who i was than know who i was and know who i was do you know what i mean it's yeah yeah Yeah. i mean that's a really complicated way of putting it but yeah that was like rap or something (laughs) no but it's but it is What's bizarre is it sounds very complicated, but Makes I think we all sense. completely yeah. know exactly what you mean. In yeah, self-knowledge. Forms. Yeah, this comes back to this idea of self-gaslighting, which I'm delighted to yeah. have coined during this. But... <laughs> yeah, what if I don't like who I am if I find that out? What if I find myself and who I am is an arsehole? <laughs> uh, so you reckon that's what powers a lot of male fear of self-analysis? It's a fear of what the results might, the findings might be? I think it does, but also I think that sort of like homophobia that's it's so ingrained in masculine culture, the idea that... That isn't always necessarily, I think Brendan Burns, I remember talking to him about it and him saying that he, that it was almost like it wasn't a fear of gay people, but it was a fear that they themselves might be gay. Mm. Because mm. that is a thing that they have internalised as being shameful and wrong and awful. And no matter how hard they try to overcome that, they still have that, oh, it's okay for everyone else, but if it was me. And that, that exposing themselves and exposing yeah. the idea that they have emotions in that way and their emotions that they have for their friends in that way and for themselves could in some way be construed and it's it, i think it's it's like that same fear that uh, there's a book called why working class kids get working class jobs and it was about why don't more people who are smart try and break away from the class system in the UK and it came down to the fact that if you're from a working class background where you're expected to go into a working class job and you're super smart and you have the opportunity to take it, the amount of risk that you have to take to go for it, because if you don't get it, yeah. then everyone in your life is going to think that you think you're better than them. Yeah, there's that fear of people going, ah, not so smart after all. Yeah, huh? so it's not just rejection of yourself, but it's the fear of losing your place within society, the fear of losing not only who you are, but losing where you are in society. And, and people think, oh, you think you're better than me. And, and you're not. But that in itself restricts the possibility for change. Yeah, it really it? does. But it's certainly like men in particular, fear of failure, fear of public failure is a huge thing, I think. Me and Bethany both know about this. We, as comedians, yeah, yeah. we've publicly failed many times. <laughs> oh, yeah. I once did. Uh, my first time doing the Glastonbury Festival, like the peak of my childhood ambition at that time. Sorry to interrupt. My first time doing Glastonbury oh, yeah. Festival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think she's going to go on to say that it is sometimes less glamorous yeah, yeah, than yeah, yeah. Yeah, performing there. Because I've also, I've done it myself. <laughs> I was booked, I was originally booked to do the Saturday evening and I would have been on at the same time that Jay-Z was on the main stage. And then I got a phone call saying Bill Bailey wanted to do some new material. So could they move me to the Friday morning? 
And I went, yeah, sure. All right. Then. It's good in some ways because you don't want to be up against Jay-Z. It's not, it doesn't feel like a level playing field. It doesn't really, unless I just went up and listed off my problems for the full 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, in some ways, comedians are quite similar to that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost the same act, whichever stage you're watching. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, but I went on on the Friday morning and I did half an hour to complete silence. <laughs> I had a tent of a thousand people all watching me in complete silence. Ooh. And as I walked off, the stage manager went, don't worry, you'll still get paid. <laughs> You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. Funnily enough, I had almost the opposite problem at my first time doing Glatton. I was just—you were just so popular. Is that the issue? Yeah, the opposite problem. I was just so good. That, uh, they actually, actually they, uh, Coldplay left the main stage to come and watch oh, me, no. and it was embarrassing. No, I'm um, not really. Um, sorry, guys. We were going to play Yellow now, but we've heard there's a comedian tearing it up across the field. Um, my Glastonbury memories is, well, it was a similar thing, but the opposite problem in that I was put on about two in the morning rather than 10 in the morning, but also it was the cabaret tent, not comedy. Yeah. I've done them both in my time, but this was cabaret and the people went on before me. It was a Canadian double act. And as far as I could make out, they just sort of, their act was just like hurting themselves, like putting safety pins into themselves yeah. or like stapling bits of them. Very, very clapping. Yeah. It was, so the audience were just like screaming as these people inflicted more and more pain on each other. And then there's a case of, and now Mark Watson. <laughs> and, I thought, and you inflicted a different type of pain upon them. I don't normally follow people whose act is wounds yeah. really, but uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's interesting that like, you know, people often say, oh, you're so brave being a comedian like we've talked about before. And it only occurs to me now that, and I don't, I don't think I, I certainly I'm, I don't have much courage at all but I'm not afraid of public failure I don't think and maybe that is what they mean they're not actually as scared of the act of getting up and saying stuff they are scared of doing something in front of 200 people who don't like it that's why it's called a death because it's like I'm scared of dying that's why I don't get up on stage and say things in front of people yeah it is interesting the fear of failure is what motivates people to not do it for me being on stage for 20 minutes is the easiest part of the entire evening same walking yeah. through the crowd afterwards to get to my car is the most difficult mm. part of my day. And a lot of comedians would say that, you know, it's a cliche to say, oh, I'm only at home on stage, but there is some sort of fundamental truth. And perhaps that, and that's interesting in terms of masculinity, I think as well, because a lot of men deep down think they should be the guy on stage. All of us have right. met many of these men. My mate says, I'm funny, I should be a comedian. I'm really funny down the pub. Yeah, yeah. But the more people say that to you, the more intense your fear of failing to live up to that yeah. is, I think. Whereas people like me and Bethany and most comedians, to some extent have conquered that masculine fear of failure. But like hecklers are mainly men, aren't they, that think they're being funny? Yeah, mostly the ones who try and who think that they're being funny. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that try to invite themselves to be part of the show are generally male. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not always, but generally. Yeah, yeah. It's about taking control from the comedian that's on the stage in a way. It's heckling. It's, yeah, it's... it is. And they don't realise. I talked about this quite a lot and I talk about this when people try to troll me on, on Twitch. You're on stage. You're the one who's in control there, and that they're never going to win. Partly because, like, there's a there's a point at which a, a group of people become an audience, and it's when you've got more than thirty people together in that tight space, they start to deindividuate and they start to become one organism. Which is the reason why class sizes need to be below thirty; otherwise, they're unteachable. Once audiences are below thirty, you can't really oh. talk to them all in one go. They kind of split off into their separate little groups who are there. Oh, I've got teacher friends who'll be very pleased to have some actual scientific proof that their job is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to equip them with that fact. And then once you get over thirty people, they start to deindividuate, and so as a result of that, once you've got a big audience there and you've got one person in that audience, everyone in that audience thinks that everyone else in that audience is experiencing the same thing that they are, and so they all react in yeah. the same way. And when one person doesn't like you. They can't understand why it is that they haven't de-individuated. And so they then go and shout at you. Mm. And it just, they don't realise that the rest of the audience is about to turn on them because you're the one who's in control of the entire situation. And they're 
essentially someone who's, yeah. who's stepping out. It's like I have the exact opposite experience. When I'm on stage and somebody is being disruptive and I look at them, as someone who's autistic, I can make eye contact with them in an, in an audience and it makes them have the exact same feeling that I would have if they tried to make eye contact with me outside of that situation. Being on stage is sort of like a reverse image of life for you. It, yeah. It's like the photographic negative. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, a group of people that I aren't going to behave in a way that's unexpected. I know that if I say this in this order with this inflection, I will be able to cope with it. And anything that does happen is just going to be within the bounds of what I expect anyway. This principle of, as we sort of wrap it up, this this well gradually we're never very good did at you hear my tummy go this time? I, I did yeah and I, I so for humanitarian reasons we need to end the conversation soon um, I but, did and I don't think I heard it through the headphones that's the weird thing no, you heard it from Greater Manchester yeah uh, but um, this principle that everyone in the audience assumes that everyone else is reacting identically to them is it brings us back to this empathy thing basically doesn't it it sometimes feels to me like the world is yeah. like that everybody automatically assumes that everyone's reactions are or ought to be identical yeah. to theirs and that's the root of our problem because they're not and they shouldn't yeah, be. The bandwagon effect. Well, we've yeah. done a little bit of talking about how we how we get around this, how we mend people, but um, mm. we have a specific way of asking yeah. a closing question, which Michael normally does, and I think Bethany will be suitable for the, the bear yeah, thing. Yeah, I, d- so. I didn't use the Build-A-Bear analogy with Alistair Campbell, but I will use it with you. <laughs> you know what Build-A-Bear workshop is, Bethany. Yeah, they're the people who are behind the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, those guys. Although we normally keep it quiet on the podcast, Dan. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so we always like to ask people, like if you were to build a bear, but it was a man, what three qualities would you include? Except occasionally, if it's someone like Alistair Campbell, we just we don't formulate it that way because we're too scared to look like pricks. <laughs> <laughs> but you've passed the bear test, so you are getting that first. <laughs> yeah, what three qualities would you put into a man to function in the best way you think possible in this world? Um, empathy, confidence and kindness. Very good. Empathy is a popular answer, and rightly so. I think those three things. Confidence, though. Confidence, yeah, because without confidence, you're always trying to prove something. If you don't have confidence, then you're trying to prove who you are and you're Mm. trying to prove your place in the world. And the men that I find myself most comfortable around are the ones who don't don't feel the need to prove anything. Well, that's not us. We better go. (laughs) So sorry. (laughs) Good point to end then, Bethany. (laughs) Sorry to have taken up your time. No, I think that's really genuinely, that's really lovely. We we haven't heard that before. And I think it's a really astute observation. We sort of think of men as, many men as having too much confidence, which can be true. But it's also true what Bethany says, a deficit of genuine belief in yourself is behind a lot of these toxic behaviours. Overconfidence probably stems from a lack. From underconfidence, yeah. In the initial. So many emotions are sort of compensation for a deficit of something else, aren't they? You are the sort of guest with whom it would be nice to have many more hour-long conversations, <laughs> but we have to draw a line. Just because Michael is malnourished, we have to do, you know. Thank you so much for talking to us about some of the billion things in your brain. Yeah, honestly, it's been so fascinating. Would you, you like to plug anything? I have a live show that's available for digital download for a fiver at gofasterstripe.com forward slash unwinnable. And I do my Twitch stream every day, uh, well, Monday to, Monday to Friday. And where do people find you, you on social? You can be found on Twitter if people yeah. are brave you can be found, Yeah, you don't so, have to be brave. Like, if you can, <laughs> If you've gone to Twitter and you and I'm not there, then just have a think about how you've replied to some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Let's let her go before we yeah. get blocked. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Bethany. We'll check our Twitter cool. in an hour to see whether we're still there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care. All right, see you later. Bye-bye. So that was Bethany Black. And, uh, well, as billed, 
quite a full conversation there. Could have gone on much, much longer. Yeah, really, really interesting person and um, a really great perspective, I thought, actually. And really nice to have a new perspective on the podcast because we're always looking to broaden them. And in the coming weeks, we'll hopefully broaden them even further. So please do stay tuned. We are always on social media. Um, well, not always. I'm actually taking a holiday because I'm morally better than everybody else. Oh, it won't last, I don't think. <laughs> and now out of spite, I will never return. But we are on Twitter and Instagram at Mankind Podcast. Or if you want to email us, we are at mankindpodcast at gmail.com. We've had some lovely messages. I've got one here from Noah, who has said that it's been wonderful to listen to people talking so frankly about masculinity. And as a trans person, society's idea of gender is something they've always felt alienated from. And they're grateful for the way we're trying to make the world a better place by exploring and challenging these ideas. We've made them feel just a little bit more accepted in a world that's constantly pushing hate. So thank you for that. That's really nice to hear. Thank you, Noah. And a nice one from, uh, well, Eri, I think it might be, it might be Eri. Um, they say, uh, firstly, so I like this. So glad I was able to jump onto the Menkind bandwagon early. That suggests Ooh, a future. We have a bandwagon. We didn't know, did we? But that, How exciting. Um, sort of assumes that uh, there's going to be, you know, in years to come, this will be an unstoppable media juggernaut. <laughs> they go on to say, uh, since I binged Taskmaster in quarantine this summer, I've been, wait for it, sort of following Mark. There you go. Oh, sort I, of, that's, that's lovely. I still must watch Taskmaster. I'm so sorry well, I haven't got there. By yet. the sound of, if this is the bar, you can just sort of watch it by all accounts. Um, <laughs> Aries in their late 20s, assigned female at birth, but leaning in a more masculine, non-binary direction. Um, they say there is an abundance of bad role models for manhood. How am I to figure out who I'm supposed to be as a masculine person when there's so much toxicity out there? I'm glad to have the opportunity to listen to two men with vastly different life experiences sit down and talk about what it means you make my journey just a little bit easier. Stay safe and I'll see you on the internet, uh, they conclude. Although maybe you won't see Michael, of course, because of this self-imposed break, but you can find me on the internet. Um, <laughs> thank you for all of this. Keep it coming. It might be me that has to mop up these messages because of old Mr. I'm too big for the internet. <laughs> but keep them coming nonetheless and you can just address them to Mark for the next week if you like. Thank you so much. And next week we have the brilliant Jay Hume. And I met horses for the first time, which being a city person was an entirely extreme experience. I was like, oh my God, it's a horse. They're massive. They're so big. I didn't know they were that big. There you go. <laughs> this podcast is good for all sorts of information. I think. And yeah, I can confirm horses are a good size. <laughs> Depends on the horse. Yes, Jay Hume, a, uh, uh, well, an- another trans guest, uh, a poet, uh, a person absolutely obsessed with church architecture. To a degree that our listeners will find remarkable. A bingo game for next week. Uh, if you just note down every time that Jay mentions the word sexy in relation to a cathedral, um, don't play a drinking game with it because you won't make it um, to the end yeah, of the podcast. I, d- I don't reckon too many people play drinking games with that podcast. But well, yeah, you never know, right. Mark. <laughs> well, next week is not the week to start. You're right, because you will, you will never have heard churches uh, and cathedrals sexualised as heavily as they are in the episode. But there's a fair bit of other stuff talked about as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a Christian and he's particularly interested in in um, the way that the world views masculinity and gender in relation to his Christianity and things like that. So really interesting to listen out for, and we'll see you then. Yes, we will. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.